Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Al. And I'm Grizz. First up, we'll be talking to Sally Rooney, author of the hit novel, Conversations with Friends, and now a new novel, Normal People. And later, we'll be talking to David Shrigley about comedy in art. So, Chris, Sally Rooney, the author of Conversations with Friends. Yeah, I mean, even for people who haven't read it, you probably will have seen posters of this cover, a bright yellow cover. It won lots of awards last year. She's It's her first ever novel. She's 27. You know, she was in her early 20s when she wrote it. It's a brilliant kind of um, dissection of millennial life for two undergraduates in Dublin. It's a kind of romantic entanglement uh, that they get into with uh, an older married couple. Really, it's a brilliant portrayal of a complicated friendship. It's the kind of book that when you're reading, it feels much more important than your actual life. And anything that interrupts your reading of the book is intensely annoying. And all you want to do is sit for a whole weekend and read it, which is what I did. It's completely engrossing, very funny, very dialogue based. Wow. Highly, highly recommend it. And so now she's just followed up with a new novel, Normal People. So she's precocious, isn't she? She's often precociously brilliant. As she is often described as precocious, and I think that's, I think that's true. Having met her, I mean the. I mean, let's let's be clear. I mean, Sally Rooney is the first person you've ever interviewed who's significantly younger than you. Is that right? I mean, she's not. She's four years younger than me. (laughs) You know, we are this by some fractionally younger than you. We are maybe the same generation. I don't know whether that counts. But no, reading the book, I felt like I was reading about lives younger than mine and from almost a different the the kind of cadences and the way they speak and the way that they talk online, which is a big part of the book, um, definitely felt quite fresh and different and kind of amazingly rendered. She's really has a kind of ear for how young people speak but she's not doing it in a kind of superficial flippant way it's that she's actually saying a lot about millennial irony and distance and what what that's actually masking and what is going on under the surface she's also um, one of the most articulate people i've ever come across let's listen sally thank you so much for joining us on the podcast thank you very much for having me it's lovely to be here So Normal People is your second book, which has followed quite swiftly from conversations with friends. Did you approach it differently this time round? Not really. Well, I tried not to because I had I had already started writing the book that would later become Normal People, though the title came very late on in the process. By the time I actually so, sort of sold conversations with friends, I already was working on on normal people following swiftly on the heels, as you say. Um, so for that reason, I already had the basic bones of the book. Well, really, I had the two central characters by the time conversations with friends became a thing. So uh, so in that sense, I didn't really I couldn't really approach it all that differently because the concept pre-existed all the stuff that went on around the first novel. And I tried to maintain as much as I could that sense of being slightly insulated from the outside world while while working on it, because I just think it was healthier for me, I think, yeah. I mean, it would have been overwhelming considering the reception that Conversations with Friends had, I imagine. You could get that sort of 
difficult second album feeling. Yeah, you definitely could. Um, (laughs) And at times I'm sure I did. Like it's impossible to insulate yourself completely when there's the level of sort of um, like interest and fuss that there was around the first book. And I realise saying that, like, I mean, you know, it's literary fiction, so it is obviously still relatively small levels of noise and buzz. But if you're at the centre of it, it can feel like a lot. But I did try my best and hopefully succeeded to some extent. And I think it definitely helped that I had been in the world of the second book before that sort of Mm. stuff kicked off. Yeah, Mm. And these two worlds, they're quite similar in a sense. I mean, thinking about the the central characters, they're all relatively young. They're Irish. There's lots of concern around things like education, class, money, entitlement or the lack of entitlement. Were you conscious of writing in a kind of post-Celtic tiger boom time? It would be impossible for me to write in any other time uh, because I started college in 2009. So really just as the crash was unfolding and it was becoming clear just to what extent the Irish economy had been completely built on sand. And seeing the assumptions about how the market worked in Ireland and also globally just crumble completely. I mean, I couldn't just like go back, you know, mm. before that, um, especially because that was my, you know, I was that was when I was 18, 19, 20. And do you um, think something sort of changed psychically? Was there a shift in the way people were relating to ideas around money and class? For me, it was definitely a sense that preconceived notions about the economy were shown from my perspective to be pretty much false. And then it was like, uh, oh, so what else is a lie? (laughs) And it it did sort of shift my thinking in the sense that I think I probably became more critical of readily accepted, like commonplace truths about society and and about the human condition or humankind. Thinking a bit more sceptically about those ideas certainly informed who I was at that age. And then I'm writing about characters who are at that age. You know, that obviously goes into the book, I think. Yeah. They have quite an interesting relationship to capitalism. I mean, they're very critical of it. And yet, because they're students, in a way, they're not fully participating in the kind of jobs market. There's a kind of luxury to being critical, it seems, do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, I think they're they're students, as you point out. And that, I think, is the period in which a lot of people start to think critically about capitalism and about other social systems like patriarchy or whatever. I think the student years for people who do go to university probably are a time when that thinking is fermented. Like the extent to which it's luxury, I don't know. It's not like Connell, you know, one of the protagonists in the second book is from a privileged background. He's not at all. So there is a sense in which it's just having the space and time and having access to critical literature that gives him the ability to articulate these ideas. But also, I mean, he comes from a like a socialist family. He's not like, I mean, he's had these ideas in his life previous to his time in university, as did I. It's interesting to me that there's not much Catholicism in the book. I mean, I know this has been pointed out before, but do you feel that it's something that's kind of increasingly irrelevant to sort of educated Irish millennials? Yeah. And I mean, I don't I don't even think you need the qualifier educated there. I don't think that the Catholic Church has a very important social presence among Irish people of my generation. The main presence of the Catholic Church in Irish life is an institutional presence. So like hospitals are owned by the church, schools are owned and run by the church. There hasn't been in any sense a clean break with the with the Catholic past. But in terms of cultural norms and stuff, I just don't see that. It's not an Ireland that I recognise. I mean, I grew up in Castlebar in the west of Ireland and I didn't recognise it there either in a relatively small town in County Mayo, traditionally quite a conservative county. I don't recognise that, that Ireland that's structured by those kind of repressive social Catholic teaching. Yeah. So there has been a move away from a kind of older Irish literature that for which Catholicism was a huge theme. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess obviously your, you know, the literature of a country is hopefully to some extent going to be reflective of certain social realities mm. in that country at that time. And certainly the literature in early, mid, even late 20th century Ireland was very much grappling with the presence of the church. It's not in any sense that I'm trying to repudiate the past of, I mean, it was extremely important to write novels about that when it was this sort of crushing reality that it was. But I just don't think that that's reflective of who we are now. It's interesting that in this kind of past literature that ideas of guilt and, and shame and things might have been associated with religion, whereas in particularly in normal people, there's a kind of bodily theme. There's this kind of uh, sadomasochistic sex, mm-hmm. there's self-harm, there's a lot of enacting psychological feelings upon the body. And I wonder, are sort of pleasure and pain, are those things close together, do you think? That's certainly something that I'm interested in writing about. I think it was there a little bit in in the first book and I think it's definitely there again, maybe more so in the second one. And I think some of it has to do with gender. Like I'm obviously interested in writing about women's experiences. And I think as a young woman coming to terms with your sexuality can be quite a fraught process and has been for the characters that I've written about anyway. And trying to observe the extent to which sexual pleasure is sort of a legitimate aim for young women and what kind of baggage comes with that when maybe in the specific cases of the characters that I've been writing about, there may be some sort of, in the case of Marianne, I think trauma that alters fundamentally her self-conception as a person. So not trying to make any like very direct or simplistic link between her experiences of trauma and her sexual identity but just trying to be sensitive to how those things might flow back and forth between one another and that's certainly something that I'm interested in observing. Mm, it's interesting that for Marianne the the desire to be sort of sexually dominated and subjugated even she's sort of reconciling that with the fact that she's also extremely individual and actually doesn't care what people think more than these other young characters. Mm. Do you think that there's something about kind of contemporary feminism that is coming to terms with ideas around domination and those two things coexisting. I actually don't, I don't know where contemporary feminism is at with those issues now. I feel like I probably need to do more reading about that. Something I'm very interested in that runs through both the novels, and that's probably one of the primary themes of of everything that I've written, is the relationship between love and power relations, particularly sexuality and power relations. So trying to observe how fundamentally sometimes sexual relationships can be about exchanges of power and in Marianne's case that's quite an extreme exchange of power like a dramatised or almost allegorical exchange of power but it doesn't have to be that extreme or that sort of obvious in order for it to be there and I think in her relationship with Connell the book's other protagonist they kind of both in some ways eroticise the power disparity between them. Yeah one of the fascinating things about normal people is the way that the power shifts between either person you never feel that one person has 100% of it, but it seems like it's um, the share of it is constantly changing. And it's interesting that in school, Marianne is kind of socially a bit of a pariah. She's having a hard time. Connell, at least on the outside, seems to be having a pretty good time of school. How did you find school? Um, were you Marianne or were you Connell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I was probably somewhere between the two, which is probably most most people are you know hiding in the library no I was not like you know and Marianne arguably is bullied in school which I was not but I also was not like you know incredibly charming and beloved by all I was just you know regular <laughs> did you enjoy school no I didn't enjoy school at all and the reason is it had nothing to do with the social aspects of school it was the repressive atmosphere the school environment itself and sort of feeling that I was just constantly being ordered around at the whims of a an institutional power which I fundamentally didn't really recognise as legitimate or 
or consent to in any way. It was like, why? <laughs> why am I listening to these people? Like, they tell me that they're teachers. Therefore, I'm expected to listen to whatever they tell me and do whatever they say and just sort of unquestionably obey their every whim. And I just didn't, it didn't make sense to me. I just found it really degrading like I have to dress up in like a costume and go to <laughs> go to this big building every day where people just order me around all the time I would never do it again and your life around school did that have more freedom in it like in my home life yeah and so I mean on. did you was it a kind of literary artistic upbringing or what sort of things did you do yeah a bit I mean my mother was the director of the local arts centre in town so definitely my dad who was a, a technician with a phone company Telecom Erin um, was also a very big reader so we had books in the house definitely and they were both very encouraging of me reading I was very much like left to my own devices I mean I was allowed to read as much as I wanted and to write as much as I wanted and I started going to a writers group in town when I was a teenager and all the other writers were like adults who were actually writing proper stuff and I was like a, a teenager writing horrible stuff and they were all really very supportive and I feel like I had quite an a free, independent existence. But I was also quite solitary, I suppose, because I was a reader and a writer. I mean, you kind of have to be solitary a lot of the time to do those things. So, um, yeah. Was there a point where you where you knew that you were going to be a fiction writer? Did you sort of always know? No, I mean, I was always writing fiction. I certainly didn't always know that that was going to be my career. I've been writing fiction since definitely since I was a child. Like, I can't remember a time when I wasn't doing that. So, but I didn't really have anything I wanted to do for a job and still don't. <laughs> so, I mean, get away with not having a job to the to the fullest extent possible. I never had a career that I wanted to pursue. The world of sort of status and careers and professional life, I was never drawn to that. But there is kind of, there's the same sort of hierarchies and status and all those worries in literary life, is there not? Arguably even more so when everybody's sort of on their own. But that's the thing, like you're on your own, so you, no, not really. So I you mean, can ignore it more? Well, yeah, because you're not actually in it. I mean, I live in Dublin and I edit the Stinging Fly journal in Dublin, which is a journal of new writing. So in that sense, I'm very much involved in the literary world there. But I don't I don't see the status hierarchy stuff that much. I mean, maybe that's naivety on my part. I guess I'm, I'm quite like reclusive in my personal habits. <laughs> I don't really go out much, so... I suppose people sometimes just have an image of a literary scene as being sort of backstabbing and people sort of worrying about where they are and on the kind of ladder of things. Yeah, I think maybe Ireland is like too small for that to be the reality. Maybe it is. Maybe it's the reality behind (laughs) my back that's all going on. I have no idea. But certainly my experience of the Irish literary scene is, first of all, it's like a fairly small community and also very, very supportive, very kind from the beginning before my book came out. Everyone was really very nice to me. And since then, it's been exactly the same. You know, quiet, like not, <laughs> not a lot, you know, I don't know, not, not, a, a, not, not a lot of drama. No. Yeah, I just, I haven't <laughs> no, encountered really any drama. Yeah. Um. Um, people have written about you a lot and sometimes in terms of a sort of Irish, a contemporary Irish tradition of writing. And then also in other traditions, including a sort of millennial, slightly confessional women's writing tradition with, you know, figures like Lena Dunham with girls and Sheila Hetty. Do you have any sense of being connected to other writers in a tradition? It would be very disingenuous to say no because it's impossible to write a a novel that isn't in conversations with other novels, I think. Like the novel form is what it is and by engaging in it, you are necessarily engaging with other novels. You can't write like the neutral novel. (laughs) Um, There's definitely a sense that I'm trying to come to terms with what the novel is and that necessitates coming to terms with particular traditions and sort of threads running through the development of the novel. And are Um, there any particular traditions and threads that you feel you're speaking to or influenced by? Yeah, well, I mean, influenced by, certainly, I think the 19th century novel, really, 
its formal structure and its sense of like the engines at the heart of those novels really um, for me are like that's how you do a novel and I feel they're influenced very strongly when I'm writing but then I also think there are contemporary writers who when I read their work I feel like oh that's what I want to be doing which doesn't mean that I'm succeeding in doing it (laughs) but definitely Sheila Hetty would be one of those writers I remember reading Miranda July's first collection of stories. I think I was still in school then and feeling like, oh, it's possible to write like this. It's possible to do this kind of thing. It's interesting that some of these more recent female writers, they're often talked about in terms of autobiography or memoir. And in certain ways, there seems to be a kind of confessional element of that. Is that a frustrating thing to be asked whether your work is autobiographical or... I mean, it's not frustrating. I just, I don't really know what the question means because I don't know what the substance of the question is. Like, I suppose it's a question about process. And it seems to be a question that's asked specifically to women writers. Yeah, I've heard that women hear it more and obviously having never been a male writer, I have nothing to compare (laughs) it to, but I've I've heard that women do hear it more. I mean, maybe there is something different about the fiction that women are writing now and that's what's necessitating the question or that's what's triggering the question. Or maybe it's just that there's a particular attitude toward women writers and that's what's triggering the question. I honestly don't know. I just, I guess I find the question a bit like, what does it tell you? If I say yes or no, what does it tell you? I mean, I, I don't think that you gain any good, interesting or critical information about the book from knowing that. In a, in a way, it's um, it's the interviewer asking, tell me a bit more about your life. Yeah. I mean, it's a kind of veiled way of asking for some biography. Yeah. And it's also kind of, I've wondered whether it's sort of a, so did all this stuff just happen to you then? You didn't actually make it up, did you? Which is, <laughs> I mean, I think that's a kind of a misunderstanding of what the work of writing fiction involves to think that like if something's happened to you, that it involves like a little bit less creativity to write about it than if something that if you had to make it up. They're both exactly the same thing. You're just sitting with your laptop or a piece of paper putting words in a particular order, whether they're based on stuff that's happened to you or they're not. I don't think it makes much difference to the creative process maybe people think you know men write great works of imagination and women just write about their own sort of personal lives I obviously don't think that that's true either in my case or in the case of most women writers the internet for a while was seen as kind of being problematic for fiction writers you know so many traditional plots kind of hang on people not being able to whatsapp each other or not being able to just instantly google something but the internet in your books it feels like it's sort of woven into it's just another platform for conversation when you were writing them do you think about how am I going to deal with this thing no I I didn't really I think I've actually found the internet quite useful in writing books because it makes sense for the characters to express themselves that way and get to know each other that way it's been useful and it's also been interesting because I'm interested in words and how people communicate and and the differences sometimes subtle and sometimes not of how people use language in a written form like email or instant messaging and how they use it in face-to-face dialogue but obviously I don't think of the internet as like a that kind of thing you know because like I grew up on the internet Mm. yeah Mm. so I don't like I I barely remember a time before internet it doesn't feel to me like it's separate from the world of the of the characters and so having that perspective probably maybe probably helps me to to write about it a bit more smoothly but having said that I I I haven't really read any bad examples of internet writing I've been told that they're out there but I haven't really encountered them I generally like reading novels where online textuality is included in the body of the novel in some way. Well, I think it also might feel like an affectation to 
set a novel now and remove all of that stuff because it is so much the fabric of our lives it, it would perhaps be odd not to have it there yeah definitely and I think the question is just like how do you elevate that something that feels so mundane like you say it's so part of the fabric of our lives and make it something literary like not make it sort of boring and ugly for the reader to have to go through but then you don't want to heighten it so that it's unrecognisable either I mean you still want it to be recognisable as real life but then that's just a microcosm of the whole thing of writing a novel you know you want to make it recognisable but not make it really boring <laughs> That's sort of the whole job, yeah. <laughs> so your books are full of this kind of very um, pacey dialogue and at times it feels like you could be reading, you know, a screenplay. How do you feel about the fact that these might one day be turned into films or, or TV? Well, they are both being turned into oh, films. They yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, they are? Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, and I'm working on the TV adaptation of Normal People myself. Um, ah. So, yeah, I mean, that's been a very interesting process so far in its very early days um, but I've never really worked with scripts before even though I write a lot of dialogues, dialogue mm. scenes in the book it's very different turning them into or trying to turn them into scenes that will play out on screen and you can't play with time in the same way which is something that I didn't realise I was doing all the time when I'm writing novels and then yeah, when you, you lose you constantly the go back into it. somebody's memory yeah mm. all that's gone so you can't but you also can't just say 10 minutes later Unless you want to put up a cue card yeah. reading 10 yeah. minutes later, yeah. you can't really do that. So you have to learn different ways of playing with time because time is actually passing in front of the viewer's eyes. So all kinds of little things like that that I'm having to think about. Do you think it will be strange to see these creations as real flesh actors? Yeah. And to see the places the Yeah, rooms? the places... I hope won't be that strange because, well, interiors are all fairly similar, aren't they? I mean, I don't think the interiors will be will be that shocking. And then hopefully we'll get to keep the locations as close to real as, as we can because they're currently the town that the first book is partly set in is not a real town, but, but it will look like many small towns in Ireland. So I don't think that any of that process will be too shocking. What will be quite strange for me if it gets to the stage is seeing actors play the characters um, because obviously I know exactly what they look mm. like in my head and that will never be what they look like in real life so there's part of me that doesn't doesn't want that to happen because it's like I'm afraid that they will forever replace the characters yeah. in, in my head yeah. but it's but it's very exciting and I suppose it's like being open to you know working with new forms and not trying to be too sort of neurotic about holding on to the you know the very closed sort of private world mm. that I've created for myself So you're adapting the screenplay for normal people but not for conversations with friends yes. Is someone else doing that? Uh, I believe so yeah but that's still also They're very still early in days talk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay Is it true that you write very fast? I do write very fast yeah but I also delete a lot in fact, the majority of what I write ends up getting deleted. I mean, I definitely write quickly, very intensely, working a lot of hours a day and getting very in my head about uh, the characters and wanting to sort of follow them everywhere. Are you happiest when you're in that state of mind when you're writing? Yeah, I definitely am. Even though it's so frustrating. <laughs> yeah, even though it's so, so frustrating, I'm definitely happiest. Because I feel like I have something, you know, I have like a secret world that I can kind of retreat to and spend time in in my head so I don't get you can't get bored like you you definitely can't get bored if you're trying to figure out what to do next in a book that you're writing because it's always sort of there on your mind but it also means that just navigating the world walking through a city or you know you're kind of thinking about your characters doing that and what and what they would perceive and how it would be different for them so it, there's a kind of usefulness to all your days then because um you can put them somewhere hopefully into the book and normal people is on the booker prize long list do things like awards matter to you? Yeah, I mean, it's always, I mean, it's always very nice mm. to be to feel that people have enjoyed the book, whether those people be 
readers who picked it up in a bookshop and have never heard my name before or the readers who happen to be the judges on the on the Booker Prize it's always very nice to think that anyone has enjoyed the book so for that reason of course it's always lovely to be nominated for something but um, yeah no I, I don't think that I'm someone who like lies awake thinking about awards or anything Do you read reviews? Uh, I do read reviews yeah I do read reviews um, Do you find them helpful or annoying? Or I, uh, I don't read other coverage so I don't read coverage about me or interviews with myself or anything I think that would just be <laughs> that would be too weird but I do read reviews of the book for me I think it's important to just be open to hearing honest criticism first of all people might point out things that you're like oh that's actually that's actually true it's a good way of reminding yourself that the book doesn't belong to you anymore you know it's in the world now but yeah I think it's important for me because otherwise I think I'd I'd start believing that the book actually was still mine Mm. so you're 27 is that right that's right yeah you've published two very acclaimed books thank you and I'm in two years what's next (laughs) can you say yeah, I mean, I can say because I don't know. I don't know what's next. Yeah, I mean, I'm as I said, I'm I'm editing the the Stinging Fly Literary Journal in Dublin. It's still going on. Our winter issue will be coming out in November, so that's kind of the day job. Like that's um, and it's great, and it's a lot of work, and it keeps me focused. And then, hopefully, I'll write I'll write something new. I don't know when it will be or what it will be. It could be very different from the two that I've already done, or it could be like very similar again. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. Um, so I can't actually say. And then, as I said, I'm working as well on the adaptation, the TV adaptation of Normal People. So that's plenty to be getting on with, I think. Yeah. Sally, thank you so much. For thank you us. so much for having me. Thank you. Um, I wondered if you might sign my books. That's I'd very fine. Delighted to. <laughs> no, I would be delighted to. So, Chris, this week we're talking about comedy in art. Yeah, so this coming week is Freeze Week, which is the week in London where lots of new exhibitions and galleries open. The Freeze Art Fairs come to Regent's Park and it's kind of a moment for taking the temperature of contemporary art. And something I noticed looking at, you know, the lists of kind of what's coming up and and planning what I'm going to see is that there seem to be several shows about humour, about this subject, as you mentioned, about kind of comedy in art. There's a show at the South London Gallery, which is called Knock Knock, Humour and Contemporary Art, curated by an artist, Ryan Gander, who has been on the podcast before, and it has a very dry sense of humour. David Shrigley is going to be at Freeze London. An artist called Yours Fisher has made an amazing, larger-than-life wax candle of Dasha Zakovia, who's the ex-wife of Roman Bramovich, as I'm sure you know, and an art collector, And over the course of this exhibition, the candle is going to burn and she just sort of melts into a heap. Like some kind of fairy book character. Isn't that awful? That's like ice sculptures. It just seems like such a waste. (laughs) Just make make something that will last forever, don't you think? Oh, yeah, maybe it's making a point about, you know, ephemerality. I'm sure it is, but it is just just a waste of time. (laughs) And so not one for you. Okay, so in general, do you think that art is a good medium for comedy? I am not convinced that it is. I mean, as you know, you know, art's a big part of my job and my life and this isn't a slight on art, but I kind of think that not every medium has to be all things. You know, I don't think contemporary dance is the best way of conveying a really complicated detective plot um, in the same way that I'm not sure that contemporary art is the best way of telling a joke. I'm not sure that it has the right tools necessarily. I, I mean, you know, I'm sure that... Many people would disagree with this, but I think that a lot of humour, that kind of sophisticated humour, is quite dependent on words. And once you remove words, the joke can have a kind of one-liner, kind of visual pun, slightly gimmicky okay. quality. Do you know what I mean? Um, not, not really. 
I'm not certain that they need words. I mean, isn't all sort of surrealism essentially a joke? I'm not saying something can't be funny without words, but I think there is a limit to what you can do with a joke when there are no words at all, either spoken or written, when it's just a kind of inert piece of art on a wall. I think lots of art is very funny, and I think lots of contemporary art is funny, and particularly made by my hero, David Trigley, who is coming on in a minute. But maybe it's not funny in the sort of side-splitting... Belly laugh. ...wet your pants (laughs) kind of way. But it is... I think it can be just as shocking and meaningful as in any other form of telling a joke. Mm. If we go back to... Do we think that Duchamp's fountain sculpture of a bog... (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I don't think that a urinal is that funny. I mean, I can see that it was totally shocking at the time, but but it wouldn't have raised a hundred years later. A good bit of toilet humour like that. I mean, maybe maybe it's because it's become it's so well known. It's not funny anymore. There is maybe an element of that, which yeah. is you know that's just time. Okay, but do you think then, even if we're not howling with laughter at some of these jokes, do you think that they um, are still valid and can be meaningful? Like, for instance, the Dadaist response to the First World War was yeah. to you know, laugh at it. I, actually, I have, a, I have a good quote. It's just from a comedian, actor, Townsend Gregg, saying that, you know, to tell a good joke in art, you need to face reality head on. And that what artists are doing is essentially laughing at death. In some kind of yes, way. I completely agree with that. And I think, you know, there is an absurdity to violence. And that's totally what Dada and, and all of that was about. And I and I think that is completely successful in what it was trying to do. I think what I'm saying is I don't think, you know, if I want comedy, if I want to laugh, I don't think visual art is where I'm going to go for that. That's not to say that the art isn't profound and provocative and shocking. But, you know, walking around the South London Gallery, I didn't laugh once and I didn't see anyone else <laughs> laughing. And I think... Did you raise a wry smile, though? I mean, yeah, occasionally, and partly because maybe I felt like I should. You know, I was at an exhibition called Knock Knock. But I think what they were trying to do was to be provocative rather than to make people laugh out loud. I think part of the problem for comic art to be taken seriously is just, is one of perception and that comedy can be seen as fluff, like a sitcom is usually regarded as, as a fluff. It's not serious like other drums might be. But in its essence, I think that all jokes are a little minor act of rebellion or transgression. And that for the really good joke to be successful, the stakes need to be very high and the tension needs to have been built to such a point that when it is burst, the release and relief of that results in a big laugh. So in fact, I think that it is the opposite of fluff. I think that what they're doing is looking at the most serious, most terrifying, most inevitable reality of all life, which is death. I particularly like David Shrigley's photograph of a stuffed Jack Russell dog holding a placard saying, I am dead, which seems to... uh, (laughs) The dog is on its hind legs and standing outside some sort of grand building. It's poking fun at death and our perception of death. It looks like a perfectly normal dog, apart from it standing on its hind legs and it's saying, I'm dead. (laughs) That comes back to the words thing. I mean, that does rely on words. I think a lot of why Shrigley is funny is the words. Do you think Banksy is funny? I think he's funny to a a point. I think really, though, what I mean about 
visual jokes is that they have quite a quick expiry date. Like I couldn't live with a Banksy and find it funny often. Whereas I think I could watch a sketch from some brilliant comedians multiple times and find it funny every time. I think there's something about a visual joke that has a kind of lifespan. At my drama school, one of the exercises we had to do to become a clown, become a real clown in the French sense of the word, not, not a circus clown, is we had to tell a joke in front of the whole class. Then a few people would laugh. Then you had to wait and tell the joke again. And then maybe one person would laugh. And then you had to tell it. And you'd tell it about 15 times to the point where you'd almost be in tears. <laughs> moved, moving into a sort of state, into a sort of out-of-body state where you sort of, your inner desperate clown uh, reveals itself. It's amazing. That sounds like the most excruciating <laughs> exercise I've ever heard of. Do you want to hear my joke? <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> Go for it. Okay, so God, I don't want to hear it 15 times. God says to Jesus, you know, I've been thinking about it and um, you're going to have to die at the end. And so I thought it's either going to be crucifixion or you're going to be killed by a swarm of bees. So Jesus has, goes off and has a little thing, um, comes back and he says, well, I had a little thing and then it's going to be the crucifixion. And that is today why um, Christians go like this rather than... <laughs> <laughs> that's not a joke that's going to translate on a podcast <laughs> yeah no one can see that that was a visual joke um, well for the benefit if we are going to keep that I mean I should say that for the benefit of the, the listener I, I was flapping bees away from my head um, but let's move on so we have Margot Heller director of the South London Gallery and curator with Ryan Gander of the Knock Knock exhibition and we will also talk to David Shrigley from Stockholm, where he has an exhibition. And I'm really, really excited by this because he's my complete hero. I've been a fan since, the, I think, the, basically since the beginning of his career when my mum would take me to exhibitions of his. And I'm keen also to see if he's as funny in real life as he is in his artwork. So um, uh, no pressure. So, Margot and David, thank you for joining us. Margot, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you know, contemporary art is often the butt of the joke. You know, people saying things like, my five-year-old could have done that. But does contemporary art have a sense of humour? Well, it can do, and it's true that um, contemporary art is often the butt of the joke. And as someone who's worked in the arts for several decades, I've had many a conversation with people who do deride contemporary art and um, but defending it is part of my job and one of my passions. And so you've curated Knock Knock Humour and Contemporary Art so I mean presumably you do think that that contemporary art has a sense of humour? Yeah absolutely there are a number of artists well a huge number in fact increasingly through the 20th century who use humour as a device in their work often to make an underlying point which is not necessarily humorous in itself. David, if I can ask you, I've been sending postcards of yours to sort of godparents and elderly relatives for years, and I've often felt they were possibly a bit off colour, but um, <laughs> I love them. That's why I send them. But do you think that art is especially funny at the moment? I think we all need a sense of humour at the moment, particularly those of us who live in the UK. One has to laugh at the situation in order to alleviate the stress and misery. Stress specifically um, of Brexit, or you just mean yes, broader stress? Specifically of, specifically of Brexit. I think politics in the UK at the moment is very frustrating. I guess it's a it's a, a situation that we can immediately do nothing about. So a solution to that is to laugh. 
But, but you were making um, slightly morbid, macabre, hilarious works of art long before Brexit. Has your art changed, do you think, since 2016? I couldn't really say. I mean, uh, two years at my time of life isn't that long, so um, hard to say. I mean, it's a conversation that I have quite a lot, you know, where people say to me, should contemporary art be serious? Can it be comic as well as serious? To which I respond that it's perhaps a misunderstanding of what the words serious and comic mean. They're not antonyms. They don't mean the opposite of each other. The opposite of seriousness is maybe incompetence or dilettantism. And the opposite of, of comedy is is misery. There's room for comedy and there's room for seriousness in the same works. Any message that you want to deliver to somebody is is somehow sweetened a little bit with comedy. There's not a lot I can do about my my voice as as an author, as an artist, as it were, because it's just, just sort of part of my personality, part of my default setting is to find find comedy in things. And Margot, thinking about kind of visual jokes, do you think that visual art is is well placed to make jokes? Is this something that, that kind of a visual that an object can do well or, or a drawing or a painting? Well, it can just speak in a completely different way to words. It's a different language and there's something just really magical about the viewer adding a commentary to it or a narrative to it. So, for example, Seal Floyer's saw, which is a saw apparently coming up through the floor, having cut almost a full circle and that we are able to suspend disbelief somehow long enough to to get the joke and and to laugh, but we know that there isn't somebody underneath the floor trying I, I to escape. I saw people in the gallery kind of stepping into it hesitantly and then stepping out again and sort of laughing because. Yeah, but there's also a sinister aspect to that work as well because you know maybe somebody's trapped underneath and trying to get out. So, actually, there are very few one-liners in the show and. Um, Contemporary art that speaks to me most strongly is that which has several layers to it. And I think with humour, a lot of the best jokes do work on different levels. I'm interested in the mechanics of a visual joke like that. Obviously, most humour that we recognise, stand-ups, sitcoms, movies, novels, the comedy relies heavily on timing and surprise. David, you can answer this. How do you think that the mechanics of the visual joke are different to those of, say, a stand-up comedian? I, th- I think every everything you say exists in context. So when you're writing something that's to be read in a book, it's perhaps different from how you write something that appears on the wall in a gallery, maybe. You know, you, you make an object that communicates something. It's very different from a film that communicates something. So, So there's a certain pitch to every media and to every context so i'm always really aware when i make i I guess i'm best known for making funny drawings or whatever you want to call them and i'm really aware that when i'm making a drawing with a greater amount of text i'm really aware of how people read that you'd probably find a more articulate response if you ask the same question to a stand-up comedian because that is very much about timing and very much about responding to things. But in your funny drawings, as you, as you call them, I mean, there is um, an element of timing there, isn't there? If you, I mean, in some ways it's funny and perhaps in the way that Peanuts is, could be funny. You, you, you are moving along a narrative. Yeah, it's very much about comic timing, I suppose. But then again, I don't see myself really as a comedian. 
but the primary purpose of those things isn't necessarily to make people laugh it's just to make a graphic image that is some in some way engaging and interesting uh, it just mm. tends to end up being funny a lot of the time that is the thing about humor in in art as a device is that it can be a way of making a connection with the audience or the viewer you know which is just one level of it and that that's the beauty of it because it can be a, a mechanism for talking about other things and one of the things i was thinking is that a lot of humor does rely on words do you think it's easier to make a joke with words i think when you, when you make an artwork that is is comic whatever you're never in control of how people receive that but i think when you're if you're on the stage i guess you're you're delivering a message in real time for the most part i'm never there when people see the work and the context changes everybody brings their own context to a work and you're not there when my mother-in-law receives a postcard of a man walking over a bridge with an enormous penis under the yep. bridge. <laughs> well, no, happily not, no. But you, but you will be at some point, and you'll have to justify yourself. I think that one she actually pinned to her pinboard in the kitchen. Um, I never sent that one to my mother, <laughs> just for the record. David, are there sort of funny artists, comedians of art history who you are influenced by or draw on. We have a tradition in this country of funny art, of satire. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much comedy within contemporary art. Sometimes people seem to think that I invented comedy within contemporary <laughs> art, which is kind of ridiculous. I mean, there do seem to be an awful lot of people who have copied you, don't you think? I don't know. I don't know. It's not something I'm really aware of, to be honest. Talking of other artists that I find hilariously funny, I mean, Maurizio Catalan, he's a very, very funny artist, somebody I very much admire. I mean, his work is, it works on so many levels. And he's in the South London Gallery show with, with the pigeons up in the eaves, isn't he, Margot? They're rather good. Oh, I'm glad you like them. I'm glad they made you smile. And I love the fact of, I love seeing visitors walk into the space and then notice them often quite a long time after they've arrived into the space because of the way that he's positioned them. They're so authentic. I mean, well, they are stuffed pigeons. That is effectively what they are. But there's a simple humour to that, which mm. is just really beautiful and visually the trickery of it. And again, we're not really supposed to think that they're real pigeons, but for a split second you do, actually. And there's a real pleasure mm. and joy in that, as well as the references to pigeons in London in this particular instance. To your artists, um, has it always been easy, do you think, for them to be accepted as artists, that that qualifies as a work of art um, now than there was, say, a generation ago? I, I mean, I guess some people say, oh, do you, do you feel marginalised because people don't take you seriously because there's so much comedy in your work, but I don't, I've never really felt that. I know that you can't expect everybody to like the work, and that's just the way that it is. Would you want um, everyone to like the work? Well, it's impossible. Nobody can like anything universally. I mean, I think that, I guess I've, I've been around for a while, so I sort of, you sort of see people who were really, really well thought of 20 years ago, and now they seem to have sort of disappeared. Contemporary art is just a big pile of opinions, and the only really important opinion is yours. So or Margot's, surely. Or Margot's, yeah. I mean, hers is very important. Like I say, every all art exists in context, and all that context just changes. It's but that, nice that's true of humour as well, though, isn't it? In that it's it's very subjective. Something that's hilarious to me is 
not funny to Al and Margot, or you even. Undoubtedly. That's true. <laughs> That's true. But do you like the idea that your work does make people laugh? Yes, I think it's a good thing because I think that if people laugh at it, it means they've understood it on some level. It means that even if people just see it as or as comic, as a funny drawing or whatever, at least you've engaged with somebody. Comedy is positive as well. Like I say, the opposite of comedy is misery. And um, we don't want that. I always thought most comics were also miserable. I thought it was just, you had to be, but you're not miserable, David, I hope. I'm not funny enough to be miserable, so... <laughs> are you as funny... <laughs> are you as funny in real life as you are in your work? Well, I, I don't know. I doubt it. I doubt it. I'm Everyone must be here. disappointed um, by that. Yeah. I'm sure they are, <laughs> constantly. But, you know, um, the idea of humour as being a cover for underlying misery is, is as old as the hills, and mm. some of the work in the South London Gallery show looks at that, like Ugo Rondononi's Clown, for example. It's not a work of art that is meant to make you laugh out loud hysterically. It's really about humour as a subject and a mask sometimes for underlying misery, melancholy, loneliness, etc. Um, and anger, too. Yeah. Well, on that happy note, um, <laughs> David, Margot, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank nice you. Nice to talk to you. The exhibition Knock Knock Humour in Contemporary Art is at the South London Gallery until the 18th of November. And the Freeze London and Freeze Masters Art Fairs run from the 4th to the 7th of October, where you can see David Shrigley's work at the Stephen Friedman Gallery Stand. And Sally Rooney's novel Normal People is out now. Let us know what you think of the podcast. We'd love to hear from you at facebook.com slash everythingelsepodcast or by email everythingelse at ft.com. If you like what you hear, then please do subscribe and leave us a rating or review. Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Grizz and Al. And our music is composed by Fatima. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.